he who loves is born of God. Yes. That becomes another choke point for most evangelicals. Your kingdom come today on In the Shadow of the Cross. to another episode of In the Shadow of the Cross. I am Lauren Rosser, and I am here. Let's change it up. I'm here with Michael Harden. Oh, hello. <laughs> and here's Jim Durkin. So I was sitting here thinking, um, I'm going to beat Michael to the punch. I'm going to say this week. <laughs> and then you change it week. up. Next so week. <laughs> exactly. I messed you up. I, I had a sense you were up to something devious there, Jim. So I no. I I always introduce Jim first and I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna spin it around this time. So um well, that messed things up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So last week we started a discussion on the Lord's Prayer, and we want to continue that discussion. We've, we've got some heavy parts of, of, of that prayer still to, to talk about. Um, so we're looking at it um, in Luke uh, because of uh, Michael showing us that the, um, the one in Matthew was more the liturgical prayer that was for uh, written for large groups, if I understand correctly. That was that was more... Um, well, it to- would have... Okay, so it, it wouldn't have been written for the large group, but it would have it would have been composed for that group as their prayer. I you know I, mean, I don't know about written, but yeah. Oh, gotcha. Okay, and uh, so we're looking at it in Luke, um, and we're at Luke um, uh, chapter eleven, verse two, and I'll read through it, and then we're going to pick it up. Uh, he said to them, "When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name." Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. So this week, let's start out with your kingdom come. That is a that is a big, hefty, hefty line right there. So um, I know we had a lot of a lot of thoughts on it. I know I have a lot of thoughts on this one as well. Um it, it, where where do you guys want to start on your kingdom come? What have you been taught? Well, I've been taught that it's basically um, your kingdom come, like like Jesus come back soon um, and establish your kingdom on earth. Mm-hmm. So that that's that's what I was taught on it. Well, historically, possibly uh, in our or at least in my youth, I think that was the. Uh, basic teaching. More recently, teaching that uh, God's kingdom is going to come and the earth is going to look like heaven, you know, as in heaven, so on earth. Um, You know, we're going to take over the seven mountains and, and, you know, and we're going to issue in the kingdom of God. And, and, you know, the kingdom of God is uh, wherever God reigns. That's the kingdom, uh, you know, and, and all kinds of, so there's all kinds of philosophies out there about what the kingdom is, what it looks like, how it comes, 
um, why I need to pray your kingdom come as, you know, uh, you know, and, and, and so on. And, and I, I, I think there's, there's a lot of confusion on this subject. Let's put it that way. Where do you think that confusion comes from? For me, a lot of it comes from just the teachings that I received growing up, um, kind of an eschatological view of, of the church, you know, buying into eschatology. Well, I, 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 you know, this may not be a direct answer, but I think that confusion has been there all along. Um, I, I think the disciples uh, had a confusion about what the kingdom of God was. Uh, and and that was their eschatological interpretation of the prophets, that when the Messiah came, he was going to set up his kingdom, and that kingdom was going to overthrow all persecutors. And since since they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, when he set up his kingdom, it was going to overthrow Rome. Of course, Rome was the persecutor. And peace was going to reign on the earth, and even though even though Christ said He gave us peace, but it wasn't going to be the way the world gives peace. And so I, I, I think it, I think that wrong interpretation of the kingdom begins right with the disciples. Bam, <laughs> bam, but but. Only a certain section of the early church okay. made that error. Okay. And that section is the Jewish Christian uh, coalition that is in and around Jerusalem. Under uh, Peter is authority at first, and then for some mysterious reason, under James' authority. Um, so that Peter, Jesus' number one disciple, should come under the authority of Jesus' younger brother is remarkable. First of all, but second, we can distinguish the literature influenced by this uh, uh, Jewish Christianity led by James, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, very clearly in Antioch uh, at the end of the first century, uh, still influenced by a certain um, uh, element uh, from that tradition, uh, in, in particular, even though uh, the writer of Matthew uh, is kind of a critic of the Enoch myth. Well, that's what Matthew's birth narratives are about. Uh, still, he carries on with this Second Temple Jewish eschatology. We see that in the book of First uh, Peter and Second Peter. We see it in Jude, right shot through Jude. The book of the Revelation, again, out of this tradition. Um, and Paul's first two letters, the Thessalonian letters. Paul is still locked into that second temple eschatology. And something happens to Paul between the, those letters in 41 and 48 or 49 when he has the incident at Antioch and has to confront the James Peter tradition over, we say, the law. But it's not just the law, just the Torah. It's, it's everything, including this eschatology. Something happens there, and there is a massive break. It's a breach. It's an abyss that will open up in the early church. And then the all Paul's later letters, um, the Gospels, Mark, Luke, um, 
the the apostolic community behind the fourth gospel, the gospel of John and the letters, these all reflect this really distinct view of eschatology, of the, the person and work of Jesus in relation to the world. But that breach, as Jim, you identified it very clearly, it starts with the disciples. Because what they did was they had this Jesus event and they tried to fit that Jesus into their theological model. That's all they knew, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it takes thinkers like the Apostle Paul, like the writer of the fourth gospel, like the writer of the gospel of Mark, like the writer of Hebrews to, to, to say, no, we don't need to think about Jesus in relation to our theology. We need to think about our theology in relation to Jesus. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's good. So, so then we're looking at your kingdom come. Um, so what does that mean? Well, let's, let's acknowledge a couple of things. So there've been some debates and this is just for your curiosity and interest alone. It has, it has to do with the topic, but in the 20th century, in the historical Jesus studies, um, it was noted early on, I believe by Rudolf Bultmann, that the, the words Basileia Tuthau, the kingdom of God, and the phrase Hohuios Tuanthropu, the son of man, never occur together in Jesus' teachings. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Because Jesus' favorite self-designation is the son of man. Okay? But is, there is never a son of man saying in conjunction with the, the kingdom. Now, the Son of Man, where does this come from? Well, it could come from uh, the Psalms, in, you know, like Psalm 8, and what is man that you are mindful of him, the Son of Man that you should care for him, where the Son of Man is just a metonym for man, human, human, I should say, right? And in Ezekiel, hey, Son of Man, which means, hey, human being, you know, um, could come, say, um, many, 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 many have said it comes from the book of Daniel. We have one like the Son of Man coming on the on the clouds, right? And the other thing is that the Son of Man is an Aramaic way of, of Baranashah is another way of saying I. Or, you know, so, for example, in the saying, the Son of Man, uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man, therefore the Son of Man has Lord, is Lord over the Sabbath, right? Well, who's, what is son of man there? Is it true human? Is it I? Is Jesus saying, I am the true human? I'm the true human seen before as though I come from heaven, right? So is Jesus clever enough to play on all of these? I think so. But why is reign of God never mentioned in conjunction with son of man? Because son of man is an apocalyptic figure in the minds of everybody, right? Okay. Jesus is trying to show that the way the Father rules, the way the, the, the Creator rules, is fundamentally different from the way that, that we perceive God's governance. Okay? And, and I think keeping those separate helps us to understand why in the 20th century you had the scholars saying for like 30 years that the Son of Man was from Daniel. The evangelicals said it, the liberals said it, all from Daniel. And then it switched, 
And the Jesus seminar uh, said, no, 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 uh, comes out of like, is he, like my friend Walter Wink sees it coming from Ezekiel, um, many others, the Psalter. We're not dealing with this eschatological figure. So there was a great journal article called uh, Exit the Apocalyptic Son of Man, you know, just det detailing that. And then, you know, the Jesus Seminar scholars basically made Jesus into a wisdom teacher. But there, there came along others who said, wait a second, man, we can't do that. He was also an apocalyptic prophet. We're going to connect it back to Daniel. And then you had an article called Reenter the Apocalyptic Son of Man, right? So, so the scholars they sit and they they go they they're debating all these things. But the 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 most important thing here is to recognize that the phrase Masalea Tutha U uh, and Bruce Chilton did marvelous work here in um, his book uh, A Galilean Rabbi and His Bible, as as well as his uh, early earlier uh, linguistic works. Uh, he's the editor of the Isaiah Targum in the Targum series, edited by Mark McNamara. And in the Isaiah Targum, Chilton shows how Jesus took his understanding of the reign of God from the Isaiah Targum, particularly 2nd Isaiah chapters, you know, uh, 40 through 55. And um, because the, whereas, whereas the uh, Hebrew, underlying Hebrew text has that noun uh, kingdom, uh, the Aramaic Targums change it to the reign of God, the, the, the reign, the rule, rather than the place. Okay. You know, mm -hmm. so Jesus is Good. focused on how God reigns. How does God reign? You know, how does God reign? I'll tell you how God reigns. You think God makes the, if you obey, you get a blessing. If you do bad, you're cursed. No, God makes the sun to shine on everybody evil and good and makes the rain to fall on everybody evil and bad and whatever, whatever. God doesn't discriminate. You've got God wrong. We we see this all through Jesus' teachings, and that's the hallowed be the name. So the, 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 the thy kingdom come is bring your reign in. Usher you the way you reign into our society and our culture, the way you reign. And sadly, our charismatic friends... With all of their mountaintop theology, all they're doing is lording it over the Gentiles and the Jews in the name of Jesus, who looks far more like your bad politician than Jesus. I'm, I'm pondering um, some things here. Um, so it's interesting because it, it's the way you reign. So I'm, I'm thinking about how, um, and this goes ties into what we talked about last week, as far as um, we know from Jesus that the way the father reigns then is, is not with violence, um, peaceful, not manipulative. But the other thing that I'm seeing from this is that it, it radically changes our, when we pray from it being let, you know, come back quickly and put everything in place mm -hmm. to basically we're praying that, okay, like, like what my mind immediately goes to is, is when, uh, when it talks in, in, uh, is it Isaiah where it talks about they'll beat their swords into plowshares and, um, you know, that, that beautiful vision of, of the, of the reign of God on the earth, mm -hmm. the reign of, of our father. Um, mm -hmm. uh, my thought is immediately that what we're praying then is not some future event where Jesus comes back and forces everybody to do that, <laughs> but rather we are praying that we become, um, partners with him in that that reality comes into the earth so that we now start 
beating our swords into plowshares and and living basically, if you will, God's dream of of how we would interact and relate to one another. I, I love that. That's quite yeah. beautiful. Yeah. So so I'm thinking um, when Jesus was baptized, it says he, he, he went out from there and he began to teach. From then on, he began to teach the kingdom of God. We, we have uh, multiple, multiple parables of the kingdom of God is like this. Jesus says the kingdom doesn't come with observation. If they say, go here, go there, because there's the kingdom, you're going to find it there, you know. Um, don't waste your time, you know. Don't spend your money on an airplane ticket to go here to find the kingdom. The kingdom's within you. So I'm 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 looking, and I have for some time now. I've been looking at the conversation Jesus had, where he said, "Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom." And 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 I've I've. Having grown up in evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal, whatever you want to say, circles, uh, we've given, of course, we've given an interpretation that that we're saying right now is a wrong interpretation to the kingdom. But secondly, we've given a, an interpretation that I, I am coming very quickly to uh, the conclusion that we've get an interpretation of being born again that is a country mile off from <laughs> from uh, <laughs> you know what the That's Lord meant. very generous, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> you know, from what the Lord meant, He's talking about the kingdom doesn't come with observation, and yet He's saying that you can see the kingdom. But it takes this thing called being born again. Uh, Michael, is that something you would uh, be willing to pick up on? Sure. And, uh, so uh, we obviously need to turn to John chapter 3. The issue is, and it's raised twice, but it's raised differently. Listen carefully. So verse 3, uh, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. They are the same thing. To be born again is to be born of the water and the spirit. With me so far? Yeah. Now, there's there's just so many things about this text that are wonderful. But but what's one of the things that's happening in this text is the use of what are called Johannine doppelganger, which means uh, this writer of the fourth gospel uses words with double meanings. And there are, there are a lot of them in this third chapter. One of them is the word, for example, pneuma. Pneuma can mm-hmm. mean breath. It can mean wind. It can just mean spirit, you know, air, pneuma. Um, a, a, another one um, in this text is done in verse 14. As Moses exalted... The serpent in the wilderness, we normally use this word exalted. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. God will exalt you. God, you are highly exalted. We know what we mean by exalted. But for the writer of this gospel, exaltation takes place 
as a criminal on a cross six feet off the ground. Mm -hmm. The greatest, God's greatest humiliation. That's his exaltation, right? So this writer uses these double meaning words. Well, anothen is a double meaning word. Now, if you take anothen in terms of time, like Nicodemus does, it's going to be born again. I was born once, I'm going to be born and I seek a second time. How can that happen, right? You get, you, you know, that's this kind of gross, Jesus. I ain't climbing back inside, right? <laughs> kind of big. <laughs> what a bit. But, okay, so Nicodemus takes it takes it temporally. He takes it on that, sure. that plane of, of what the uh, Johanna and Arthur calls the world, the cosmos, okay? Je and Jesus means it spatially. From above, mm -hmm. okay? okay, and anothen is often used for above in the New Testament and Greek in general. So Jesus is trying to shift his perspective. You have to be born from above. You have to think differently about things. And Nicodemus, all he hears is because because he can't hear yet is mm -hmm. again in time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. What the evangelicals have done with this, beginning in the well, I mean, you you have instances of it throughout Christian history, but but for our purposes, the Methodist tradition, particularly the Methodist tradition on American soil, uh, and the resultant major revivalistic movements that occurred in the 19th century, they have made the argument that every single Christian has to make a decision to uh, believe that God hates them and God beat up his only son uh, in order to set us free. And if we would believe that why we could see Jesus love for us. And isn't that sweet and marvelous? And we accept him into our heart. And now we're born again. Somehow that saying that prayer does this little transaction and we're born again. But the thing is, our perspective hasn't changed on anything. We thought God was an asshole before we started. Now we know he's one. Right, but we're protected. We were given the divine condom. You know, I mean, I hate to be gross, but this is how I really view that whole theological model. Okay, now you you bring that where you you have to make this decision to follow Jesus, and then all the great great hymns that come out of that, the Fanny Crosby tradition, and you know all the stuff that goes on there, where. Really where the disconnect is, and this is what happens in the rural churches as you move from the 1830s to the, to the turn of the 20th century, is they lock in on following Jesus, being born again means you give up your gambling, you give up your drinking, you give up your horror, and you, 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 you don't do those things, right? And you do these other good things. And so for the entire entirety of the evangelical tradition— They've insisted you have a personal relationship with a Jesus who took a beating for you, but the God is still, you know, now you're okay with that God, but you wouldn't want to be friends with him. And the law, you got to obey all this stuff. And so for the evangelical to be born again is simply to become a good citizen of the moral code of Christendom, that lovely juncture of church and state. It has nothing to do with being a disciple. 
Yeah, that, that's the tradition I was raised with because I was raised Baptist and, you know, being born again is a huge part of uh, the Baptist right. church. Um, right. And that was that was a common phrase that, you know, we, we'd say, are you born again? And right. uh, and I remember talking to my Lutheran friend who's his dad was a pastor and and uh, he was always puzzled by that. He's like, I don't know what you mean when you say born again. Well, they have such a cheap view of judgment. Uh, and again, what are they trying to do? They're trying to get so, the more people we can save from burning in eternal torture. Right. That's to my credit. You know, I've I've saved so many hundreds when I go to Africa with my meetings and they all get born again and then they get baptized. And, you know, it doesn't change anything on the ground. Nothing changes in people's lives because so there's in, no discipleship. In, so in first, John. It's an interesting statement. He who loves is born of God. Yes. That becomes another choke point for most evangelicals. Well, there's a lot of people out there that are loving people, maybe even maybe even uh, nonviolent people. Mm -hmm. But uh, they haven't been born again because they haven't said a prayer. And yet John says they are born of God. Oh, you see, I would disagree. I have more in common with Gandhi than I do most Christian preachers. I have more in common with a, a, a pacifist Buddhist or a pacifist Muslim. Those are my brothers and sisters, not these warmongering Christians. Good point. But we so, could only have gotten there. We could only have gotten there because of the influence of the gospel on human culture for 2,000 years. Yes, yes. So one who is born of God, who is a loving, a nonviolent person, who hasn't necessarily said a prayer uh, that we call the sinner's prayer, doesn't necessarily ever go to church, but fellowships with other loving and nonviolent people perhaps is seeing more of the kingdom than others who have said a prayer, who do go to church, who harbor resentment, who are judgmental, who are, I'm better than you because I do all these moral things. Is that, is that an accurate uh, assessment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm locked in with you. Yeah, I yeah. am too. Yeah, because I'm I'm right there with with Michael too. Where I, I say the same thing that that I find I have more in common with Gandhi <laughs> than I do with a lot of Christians, sadly. Well, and and is did Gandhi actually say, "I have no problem with your Christ"? It's your Christians I have a problem with. He he said that exact thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And he read he read the Sermon on the Mount. He had it memorized. He, he recited it every day, and that includes the Lord's Prayer. Yes, yes. So when so let's get back to then the subject at hand. When we talk about your kingdom come, we're talking about something that has everything to do with transformation of a, of a mindset, of a lifestyle. It has uh, little or nothing to do with a location and certainly nothing to do with a 
not that I'm saying this won't exist, but it has nothing to do with a futuristic pre or past apocalyptic paradise, uh, you know, with crystal sea and golden uh, streets. We're, ta we're talking about actually a lifestyle that transforms from the inside out. I think that's crucial, Jim, that, that we, we, we recognize that because without that transformation, there's nothing. But when, when the Christian, the modern Christian says, well, what am I being transformed into? The, 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 the ultimate failure is they think they're being transformed from being a morally bad person to being a morally good person. Okay. Now, it may well be that in dealing with their, their own personal issues, that kind of thing occurs. However, discipleship is not concerned with that level of life. It is concerned rather with relationships, always about relationships and how we relate to one another and how the Father relates to us and how Jesus relates to us and how we relate to him. And all It's all about the relationality, okay, all of it. So when you recognize that, now, again, like I said, we've talked about Forgiveness, 70 times seven, walking without a sword, up, 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 all the stuff that a disciple of Jesus does, that scares the living daylights out of them. Mm -hmm. But they don't want being... Jesus. They don't want Jesus. What they but... want is they, they want their little consumer Christian Easter bunny Jesus that they can eat and he tastes sweet and isn't he lovely. They don't want to have to walk a Via Dolorosa, experience right. a dark night of the soul, right. let their theology be challenged and changed by the spirit so that their thinking is transformed into that of the mind of Christ. But that's the only interpretation you can honestly put on from glory to glory, we are being changed into the image of Christ. Yes. You can't you can't put any other uh interpretation on it. Obviously Jesus wasn't a very good law keeper. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh he certainly was a moral person, uh, but but that can't be the interpretation that I'm I'm being transformed into being a moral person. Right. Uh it has to be the image of Christ has to be something completely different uh, mm. to where he was saying, if you've seen me, you've now seen the father. That's right. We're being changed in that so, same image. How many of us would be so bold to say, if you've seen me, you've seen Jesus. Wow. Well, not yet, but I think if, but, but we, you know what I'm saying? if we believe it, we're getting there, but right. I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And yet I've known people that have been Christians, uh, you know, and I use that term loosely, the evangelical uh, interpretation of that, have been Christian 50, 60 years, and they would be the first one to say, no, I'm not there. I, no, I couldn't say that. And it's like, I would... I would and I would ask them, where, where, where do you lack? I would say, where do you lack? And where do you think they would say? They give you moral they codes. They give you moral codes. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? And I, would, and I would say, that's not where you lack. And then mm -hmm. what happens when I point out where they lack? Then it's like, <laughs> talk to the system. 
Yeah. 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 It is. Um, it, Cause it's interesting. What, what we're talking about here is it changes that prayer of your kingdom come from a, it, it, for me, it was always like a passive prayer, you know, a someday right. thing. And, and what we're talking about here is rather when you pray that it turns it into an active prayer mm-hmm. of, of your kingdom come. Okay. So how do I participate with you, father, in walking this life of peace to bring peace into this earth and with my neighbor and with, and around me so that, and and here's the thing where I can almost feel overwhelmed is when I look at, you know, the lion laying down with the lamb and the, you know, a war is all ended and all that. It looks like it's this massive mountain, you know, it's funny. I just realized the faith of a mustard seed moves mountains. Wow. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so we're going to circle back to that here in a second because that just hit me. Um, but it, it looks like this massive, massive mountain. It looks like my part is like chipping off like a, a tiny little pebble or rock off that mountain. So it seems like how, but, but when we understand that that's that active prayer is your kingdom come. And so father, I'm engaging with you in, and chipping away at this mountain to bring peace on earth. Um, and then, but then it's cool. Cause it's realizing the faith of a mustard seed moves a mountain. Cause I go, that's a giant mountain. And we always say that faith of a mustard. Okay. So I got this big, I need that promotion, you know, so I'm going to have that faith of a mustard seed, but realizing, no, it's that faith of a mustard seed. Jesus being that mustard seed that goes into the ground and dies. Um, it, it's that faith that says, okay, this is a massive mountain. Look, I, I, we see what's happening in the Ukraine. We see what the United States bombing other countries all the time. I don't know how this is ever going to happen, but I'm going to take that seed that went into the ground, Jesus, and I'm going to carry that and, and trust the father that, that his kingdom will come and his will will be his, his kingdom will come. But, marvelous, but it's an active thing. There's a marvelous mm-hmm. saying um, and I tend to see it like at Native American powwows and stuff. They hated us. They killed us. They buried us in the ground. They didn't realize we were seeds. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. It's really I like good. that a lot. It's really good. Wow. And so we let Jesus be that seed yeah. that spreads. So, yeah. So so we can we, we when we're together, we can sing our God reigns. Our God surely does reign. Love reigns. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm, um, there's no doubt about that. And we experience that together and we experience that with others. We also know the beauty and the, and the delight of learning how to forgive and being a forgiving person, learning how to care for you know, the unlovely, just learning that, that once we recognize people are clueless, they don't have a clue what they're doing. They really are clueless. They think, they all think, Christians and pagans alike, they all think from this worldview perspective of this sick God, healing then becomes natural to go out for, to everybody and it becomes much easier than trying to divide the world into saved and unsaved and this and that. It's just, you know, the world is sick and needs a physician. It needs a medicinal balm of Gilead of good news. Which moves us into the next petition. Forgive us our trespasses, even as we forgive those who trespass against us. Again, as I mentioned, Matthew uses hosts, Luke uses mm-hmm. Kai, but it's it's functioning the same. Uh, it's the only place in the New Testament we ask God to imitate us. And it's a funny thing because if if we're doing that, 
and we we only forgive by the thimbleful or we forgive with conditions. Is it any wonder that no matter how sincerely we prayed that prayer and got all born again and stuff, isn't it interesting that we we have managed to get to this place of complete restlessness because of that kind of logic? Mm. Yeah. Explain that a little bit. Where's your average Christian when it comes to things like death and dying? Most of them don't want to think about it. They live in what Ernst Becker called this this denial of death. They don't want to think about it. Whereas the, the opposite would be the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, you thought about it a lot. You wanted in the Middle Ages, you wanted to have a good death. Mm-hmm. That's what you okay. wanted, right? Uh, today, we deny it. We cover it up. We perfume it. Formaldehyde it. It's all covered up. Done. Boom. The average Christian is terrified of death. When I was a hospital chaplain mm-hmm. or even as a pastor, it was the Christians who were usually the most terrified yeah. of dying. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Interesting. They were uncertain. Yeah. And um, even later, as I attended other churches and, you know, the last church, I had spent a decade since I've attended a church, but the last church I attended before that, the seniors loved me. And in fact, there was a, a darling, old, very fundamentalist Mennonite woman in the congregation, I guess about a week before she died. She told the pastor, I'm so glad I took Michael's Sunday school class because I, this is the first time in my life that I know when I die, Jesus is going to take me in his arms. She didn't have that before. Wow. Mm-hmm. So the, the average Christian's terrified of death. That's why... They're all about getting the blessing in this life, accumulating in this life, as though this life was ab- about that, about being successful and, and being you know up the ladder. The higher up the ladder you go, the more favored you are. All that language is not Jesus' language. It's false. It's ideology. It's wicked. It's evil. And the average Christian doesn't want to look at their life and go, uh, if I haven't been through a dark night of the soul yet, I better get ready to go through one because that's where God is known. That's where Jesus reveals himself to us by the Spirit is in a dark night of the soul when everything is in the crapper. And I mean everything. Not only did your wife leave you, your girlfriend left you, your dog bit you, and your pickup truck blew up. Not only did your wife leave you, your girlfriend left you. <laughs> That's funny. The average Christian doesn't want to go through that experience. And when they do, because especially if they don't have someone in their life that can mentor them through that, they just give up. Yeah. They give up. And they don't realize that the giving up is essential. That's the first big move. That's the right move. The second move is embracing the fact that the Father embraces you at that point, and the only place to go is up, you know? So your, your average Christian has no clue what it is to be born again, what it means to follow Jesus. They're just, they're just basically good citizens who want to be, they want to do the right thing, you know? So what is the transgression that in, in this prayer, in this petition, that we're asking Father to forgive us for? Well, what is it that we seek forgiveness for? Well, typically, it would be all the moral codes that we've broken. Yeah, exactly. So so when we seek forgiveness, 
we can do it through that moral code kind of thing, right? Or we can mature into seeking forgiveness when we we weren't as compassionate as we could have been, when we weren't as forgiving as we could have been, when we weren't allowing Jesus to, to model himself in us because we were upset and we weren't being aware. We can ask forgiveness at that relational level. That's the mature level. The immature level has to do with personal peccadilloes, right? But the mature mm-hmm. level is mm-hmm. re- recognizing that in relationality and recognizing that the fact is we're all forgiven everything. This is the point of the gospel. Space, time, history, creation, all the rebellion that comes from the human. That's all forgiven. God has put all under disobedience in order that God can have mercy on all. But the average Christian doesn't want that because religion doesn't allow that. Because if everybody's included, that means the people I don't like are going to be there. And I don't want to be like them. I don't want them there. If in that prayer we're asking God to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, um, and and you're saying we're already forgiven, um, th- so what's taking place there then? Because it it can't be then that it's this lockdown that I'm not forgiven unless I forgive these other people the way that you know forgive them or God's not going to forgive me. Okay. What is Jesus doing here and later in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, for example, don't judge unless you want to be judged. If you don't mind God judging you, then you judge others. But just know this, with the measure you judge, God will measure you with that measure. So if you love people with the thimble as a measure, don't expect God to love you with the bucket. It doesn't work that way. Now, whereas before I might have wanted to bring heaps of buckets of judgment on people with bitterness and rancor and malice and envy and spite and everything else that goes with it, I don't want that from from God, a God. So I'm going to change my ways. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? You're right. But, But it's important here. Because in both of these, what Jesus says is, you are your own measure of judgment. Okay. Who will judge you at the end? You get to judge yourself. You you get to see yourself in truth, in absolute truth. And you get to go, wow. Yeah, yeah, or, you know, or, or, or you get to go, you know what? Um, I'm, I'm happy with me. I'm happy with who I've become, who I let Jesus turn me into. And there's a lot more I could have done. I wish I had, you know, whatever. But the point is, the, the people that are going to face Jesus, is, and the, everybody faces him, and, and he, the Father doesn't judge, the Son doesn't judge. No, you get to judge, and you have to render a judgment. So how do we, how do we answer the person then that wants to go right just a few scriptures after the the this prayer we're talking about. For if you do not forgive, then neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Uh, as if we're the one you're saying here in the prayer, this is the only time where God basically <laughs> responds to us uh, in like kind. The question seems to be, 
that we're the one that pushes the button. We push the button of forgiving other people, and then God says, okay, now I can forgive you. Yeah. Um, first of all, that section you just read there after the Lord's Prayer about forgiveness, yeah. that is not found in Luke. So that's a Mathean okay. redaction. Okay. Okay. So um, I'm not going to give it as much authority. I'll give it some, but not as much as if, if I thought it was a saying of the historical Jesus. But nevertheless, it is in the text, so we have to deal with it. I, I, I really think it's pretty clear that for this community, and remember chapter 18? Chapter 18 about the church and how you go through the elders and the forgiving process, right? Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. it's pretty clear for this community. Um, there is a, I don't want to use the word ritual, there's a process which one uses with regard to sin and forgiveness in this community. So this text doesn't surprise me that the writer's saying, look, man, the, the whole point of being here is following the Father. If, you, if you're going to claim to follow the Father and you're not forgiving, how can you expect the Father for to, give, to forgive you? So this Now, if this is the historical Jesus, I think it's hyperbolic at this point. Okay. If it's, I don't think it is, but if it is, it's just hyperbolic. It's, he's, he's, he's using hard language to break through. The, the hardest thing we do in life is forgive others who hurt us. It's the hardest thing we do in life. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And Jesus has to break through that, has to yep. show us how to make it our lifestyle. Yeah, it's like I was just reading a book um, this week, and the, the writer was saying how he keeps a, um, an enemies list where he prays through that list of people um, that he needs to forgive. And he, he said that he, he then he made a separate list of all the people that he's wronged. And, and he said it became a whole lot easier to pray for his enemies when he realized all the people that he had wronged. And, and, and it makes me think about that, of how, um, you know, forgive me if, as we forgive the sins of others. It's kind of like when you... That's brilliant. Yeah, when you realize it's like, oh, my list is longer of the people I've burned, you know, as opposed to the people that, that are my enemies. Yeah, uh, that really you, is quite brilliant. Yeah, it makes you realize you need a you need a lot of a lot of grace and a lot of forgiveness. Yeah. Or maybe the reason why I burn other people is I'm just giving them an opportunity to practice forgiveness. <laughs> you're you're always so charitable, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just helping them out, you know. <laughs> Exactly. I just, to, I just want to make you better being a Christian. Yes, I, I am the nicest guy I know. <laughs> it's that discipleship training 101. We, we've now implemented a new uh, discipleship training program in our church where, where we will purposely wound you and offend you so you can practice forgiveness. Amen. Yeah. Next. So it's also, it's also interesting that in, in uh, Luke... We don't have the, uh, what did you call it? The doxology. The doxology. Thine is the kingdom, the, pro, yeah. you know, the, and I, I know our Catholic brethren always end at the same place that the prayer ends. And the priest will say, because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Yes. But the people don't say that. 
And right. I always thought that that was an interesting thing that uh, that was that was something that the priest would actually say it as a blessing over the congregation rather than the ending of the prayer. Well, again, there's there's the influence of liturgy on the prayer, right? Mm-hmm. Now we've got do not lead us to the test. So take a Greek concordance. I would just tell anybody, take a Greek concordance, uh, look up the uses of this word. Um, uh, Jesus gets tested by the Satan. This is the same term. Tested, not tempted. Tested. Oh, interesting. Yeah. He accuses Peter of testing him, you know. He tells the disciples, stay awake so you can pass the test. That answers the thing of how it says um, that you can't tempt God. Yeah. Now, He's tested. Yeah. Now, th this, is, this is an important texture. Uh, well, that's James. You're referring to James. I'm, I'm going over yeah. to Hebrews right now. Okay. So, for example, um, in Hebrews chapter 2.18, for because he himself has suffered and been tested. And my translation says tempted, but it's pirosmos, tested. He's able to help those who are tested. Okay, pirosmos again. Okay, uh, we have a great high priest who is, for we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. In other words, he never renounced nonviolence. He, he stuck to it. I know the writer here refers to Gethsemane. So here, here the writer to the Hebrews refers to the Luke and Gethsemane narrative. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Okay? What did he suffer? What was going on in Gethsemane? What was what was the test? What did Jesus pass? To not call the angels yeah. for the holy war. Mm. Right. right. Pass the test. Right. Now, this is where risk is a theological category. Because imagine had he done what the rest of us do. Oh mm -hmm. man, mm -hmm. we we we'd have a very <laughs> different conversation right now. I mean, the point of the cross isn't Jesus appeasing the Father's anger. The point of the cross is Jesus appeasing our anger. Yeah, he takes our violence into Himself and and transforms it into forgiveness. Wow. Yeah, I'm I, I'm thinking about the uh, scripture: "A soft word turns away wrath." Yeah, and there's no softer word than the double-sided coin of not answering your accuser and then offering a word of forgiveness. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Man, well, this has been a great conversation, you guys. And uh, I, yeah, we're, we're just about there. So um, a good, good point to, to wrap it up. So now everybody out there knows everything they could possibly know about the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but at least, but, but you can get a good head head start by going to Amazon and purchasing Jeffrey Gibson's uh, "The Disciples' Prayer." There you go. 
Yeah. That's a good Excellent. one. In fact, I'm going to make note there's of that a number of, There's a number of very, very good books on the Lord's Prayer. A lot of good commentary on it. A lot of articles. And it's really it's really fun to compare the, the Lord's Prayer with other prayers in Second Temple Judaism. You know, um, when I do my Lord's Prayer seminar, we do that. We look at Samaritan prayers and Pharisaic prayers and Essene prayers. And, and, and then we look at the Lord's Prayer. Oh, very cool. All right, you guys. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody. And uh, Jim, where could people find your book? So I want to take just a a second on that. Um, Every week I say Amazon.com, but I spent probably a good 20 years writing this book because uh, I had to live it before I could actually write it. Uh, The title of it is Dying of Thirst on the Bank of the River. And... um, It was a 20-year, at least 20-year journey uh, out of religion. It begins with uh, my experience of uh, being in the pulpit and the Lord asking me if I was done yet and uh, what I I had to learn. uh, His answer when I finally admitted I was, was to walk away from things and uh, what I learned. And the journey of, uh, for lack of a better term, of decommissioning, and uh, or, or deconstruction, rather, how I found faith in the middle of that. And that's led us to this podcast and many other things. So if you're interested in my story, that might just encourage you. Uh, you can find it on Amazon.com. And and I just got to plug it. I, I really good book, and and I like um, Jim addresses some things. I'll just give a, a little quick preview, not giving it too much away. But I like how you talk in the story about um, uh, on the banks of the river. You talk about people standing around the the stagnant water, you know, dying of thirst um, because they they're not moving on with what the spirit of God is doing, and so they stay staying with the last move of God. Or you know, it's really really well written. Good, some really good points in the book. Jim. Thank you. And uh, Michael, where, where can people find find your books and materials? Um, again, they can find it on Amazon.com or YouTube. Let me let me say this. P- people are dying of thirst. And, and they have the gospel. They have the gospel. It's in their scriptures. It's in their, um, if they look deep enough, it's in their songs. If they look deeper and are willing to start getting critical of their Theology, they'll even find a little bit of gospel there. But the problem with the church is the church says, Jesus said, I am the way. You know, I'm the path, the road, the way. And they drove and they drove and they got hot and they got tired. And there was a river and they pulled over and they said, let's stay here. And they stayed and they never did anything to drink. They never did anything to drink. And then Somebody left and said, we're going up the road a piece. And the Christian said, oh, no, we're, we're going to stay here because we don't know what's up the road a piece. We like it here. We're going to stay safe. Thirsty, dying of thirst, but we're going to stay here. That, that, for me, is the biggest problem in Christendom. It chooses to stay thirsty. It chooses to stay thirsty. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, good. Absolutely. All right. All right, you guys. Well, it's been a pleasure as usual. And everybody listening, we'll uh, talk to you again next week. Next week. Next week.